Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. Vision is an interesting word. You hear it thrown around, if you will, uh, in churches, in businesses, in sports, whatever, you'll hear people talk about vision. The simplest definition of vision really is what you see and how you see it. A simple definition of vision. It's what you see and how you see it. Vision determines our concept of God. A.W. Tozer would say that our concept and image of God is the most important thought that we'll ever have. Uh, Our vision, if you will, uh, drives how we interpret life day in and day out. And it uh, it, it is the source of how we view other people. So when it comes to vision, you've got to ask yourself, what is your vision of life? What is, your, what is your concept of God? How do you view other people? How do you treat other people? Vision in leadership really is getting people to move from here to there. It's all about movement, if you will. And to me, I ask the question, <clears throat> what causes a person to leave here and go there? You've got to reach a place where you're saying, man, I, I'm, I'm not satisfied with the way things are. I'm I'm stuck. I'm living with misery. I'm living with exhaustion. So whether it's spiritually for you today, you have to have this discontent of where you are if you're going to ever move. Uh, Whether it's physically, whether it's diet, whether it's exercise, whatever it is, uh, part of vision of life is movement and change. It's like, man, I, I can't stay where I'm at. And I've reached that so many times in my life over the years. True vision is always starting with the end in mind. My wife, uh, Barb, she's been on this trip. Like I said last week, she's been gone for three years and two months and about 14 days, uh, it feels like. And Benji is here, and he knows I'm, 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 I'm lost without Barb. But when she started this trip, it was amazing. Uh, before she would even take off and hit the Route 66 and the Pacific Coast Highway, she had this plan. She had this vision of where she was going. Even as they flew to Chicago and as they made their way across the country to the San, uh, Santa Monica Pier, and then as they cruised up the Pacific Coast Highway, you should have seen her book and the resources. She had bought things on the Route 66 uh, journey and places she wanted to go. She had a vision of where she was going. She started with the end in mind. And we talk here about because of where we're going, if we're children of God, we should live with eternity as the backdrop. Where we're going should determine how we, we live. My personal vision in this area, and you, you need to hear this, of why do you teach through books of the Bible? I've had people ask that question. We teach through books of the Bible. We will start in Acts 1, and we will make our way through it, right? We've taught through the Gospel of John, Ephesians, Proverbs, you name it. We're going to start the Gospel of Luke uh, in, in December. And people have asked me, why, why do you do that? Because we always want to share the text within context of the way God gave it to us. We live in a culture where a lot of people will a la carte scripture, meaning they will take text out of context and they will create a theme and they will find verses that support their theme. And so when you start to cut and paste scripture, you've got to be very, very careful with that. We believe that the greatest way to help you grow and mature and know God is to teach the Word of God. We believe all scripture is inspired by God. 
We believe that grass withers and flowers fade, but the Word of God remains forever. So that's why we teach through it. We want to see you know God in a personal way, and we want to see you grow and flourish in your faith. And so today we're diving into Acts 26, and we've titled the series 29, which implies that we believe that Acts is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church, and we believe 29 implies that God is wanting to write a new story today, Jeff, through you that has never been written before. Through the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, God is wanting to do something fresh and new. So when you pick up Acts 26, you kind of go back a little bit, and uh, Acts 21, 22, and that's where Paul is really feeling impressed by the Holy Spirit that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. Now, Paul has been in Antioch, and he's been in Corinth, and he's been in different places, but he's got this burning in his heart that I've got to get back to Jerusalem, uh, if you will, the hub of that time. I've got to get the gospel back there. And he's even told by some faithful believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I'm just telling you, if you go back there, you're going to face a lot of harassment and insult and injury and imprisonment. Paul, I I just want you to know, if you go back there, you're going to have your lunch handed to you. And Paul goes, I got to go. And so Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He's given audience with some of the leaders. And in Acts 22, he shares his testimony. He lays it out, who he was before Christ, how he met Christ, the radical change that the Holy Spirit has brought about in his life. And, and the people received it so uh, just so warmly, right? They were just like, man, that's the greatest thing we've ever heard. No, they beat him. Uh, they, they, they harassed him. He's thrown into prison And he's been in this prison here in Caesarea right off the Mediterranean for about two years. Riots break out. All kinds of crazy things are happening as Paul is obedient uh, to the Lord. Now, 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 pick this up here. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 26, we read this. King Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Why is that important? Because the Jews and others had brought all these accusations and assaults against him. And and Agrippa hasn't heard Paul kind of lay out his story. He goes, I want you to know that you're permitted to speak. So you've got to ask the question, who is King Agrippa here? Now, he came, uh, if you will, from a bloodline of kings. There's several kings mentioned in the New Testament when you study it. And all of these kings that we read in the gospel up into the book of Acts are a part of, if you will, the Herod dynasty. And these guys have been put in power uh, by Rome to oversee Israel. The godfather of all of them was Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great, even in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he's the one that's in power uh, when Jesus is born and he's trying to kill all the babies. And uh, he really wants Christ dead, if you will, because he knows this Messiah that they prophesied about is going to mess with his power and control. You got Herod the Great. And then you've got the next one in line that was Herod Antipas. And if you read about this guy, he, he, uh, 
he, he was put in power and overseeing when Jesus was doing ministry, John the Baptist was doing ministry, and this Herod dude here, the second one, is the one that had hooked up with his brother Philip's wife, and John the Baptist had called him out. He's the one that had John the Baptist decapitated, okay? So, I, I mean, you got all this corrupt power going on here. And then you've got Herod Agrippa I, He's in power for a short period of time. James the Apostle, if you will, when you read the earlier pages of Acts, he's the one that had him executed. I mean, these guys are trying to kill off the gospel movement. And now, uh, this, this King Agrippa II right here was only 17 years old when his dad died, and he starts to move into power. And you've you got to be very careful when you're given power and influence at a young age. You've got to be very careful when you have power and influence, period. But this guy is the one that Paul is about to share his story with. Makes sense. We've got to have a little backdrop of who he's about to speak to. So the Scripture says in verse 2 that Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense, meaning he's an apologist. He's about to share the gospel. Now, Paul says this, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you're such an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, I beg you, you you've been brought up in this culture. You've been brought up around the faith. Please, please listen to me patiently. You pick it up in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And for this hope, I am being accused. Listen to this by the Jews. I'm being accused by them. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead. Hey, you've been brought up around religion. You know so much of the Old Testament stories. Let me tell you why I'm on trial, because I'm, I've been faithful in proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul is basically looking at Agrippa saying, I, I got a question for you. Why does the resurrection of Jesus freak you out? You claim that you have affiliation with God and you know God. How big is your God? If your God can open his mouth and create the worlds that we see and create man in his own image, why is that God not capable of raising a dead man? You, you, you see where Paul is going with him in his, his argument. Then Paul shares his story. Paul shares, again, the Damascus Road conversion to Christ, blinded lights. I meet Jesus. Paul then proclaims, I'm telling you, Jesus is God in flesh. He is Lord. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. Paul shares his story. Man, I was this great persecutor. Now I have become this proclamator. I was attacking the church, but now I'm defending the gospel. Paul lays out his story. Now, verse 19, Paul makes a statement. He said, God has protected me. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, all this stuff happened. He goes, hey, hey, even in the midst of all these trials and torture that I've been through, God, God's, God's protected me. Why? So I can testify to everyone 
from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. You, you know the prophets, they prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Even Micah would say, oh, Bethlehem, you're but a small Judean village, but out of you is going to come the birthplace of the king. You remember the prophet Isaiah prophesied that here he would grow up as a tender shoot, as a nobody, and as a lamb led before the shears, he would not, not even open up his mouth. You remember David even prophesied about the resurrection of the king. You remember the prophets and the and Moses and others saw this day coming. Uh, that's all I, I'm, I'm talking about, that the Messiah would suffer and would rise from the dead to announce God's light to the Jews and the Gentiles. Don't miss this. This is a tripping point for so many, whether it be Felix, whether it be Festus, whether it be Agrippa, whoever we've read about, this is a tripping point right here, that God is going to use me to bring God's light to Jews and to Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud vo voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Anytime the mention of Gentiles being included in the gospel was shared, the religious elect of that time lost their minds. We are the Jews. We are God's chosen people. We are the ones that God cares about. And now the gospel is being extended to Gentiles and Samaritans and non-Jews that were considered half-breeds. And Paul looks at him and says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For even the king, speaking of Agrippa, knows about these matters, and I speak to him with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things will escape his notice. For none of this ministry has been done in a corner. Nothing of the gospel message has been done in secret. This has been out and open for all to see. We're not hiding anything. You know that what I'm speaking is sober truth, that God created it all and he created man in his own image, that he redeemed the world through the blood of Christ. On the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus then 50 days later, bam, he had promised that the Holy Spirit was coming. God has poured out the Holy Spirit. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He lives to make intercession for us. I'm just speaking sober truth. And Paul looks and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe what the prophets had spoken? Do you believe Elijah and Elisha? Do you believe all these prophets that God has raised up as proclamators on his behalf of what they said the Messiah would look like, what he would do? I know you do. I know you believe that. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, that's what I'm praying, whether now or later, and not only you, but everyone listening today, 
to become like me, a follower of Christ. Let's break it down. Acts chapter 26 offers incredible hope, but it arouses great concern when you study this chapter. Hope God gives every person an opportunity, if you will, to have a relationship with him. I've had people say, well, what about the pygmies? And what about those that, that have never heard? Romans chapter 1 says that God has revealed himself. The invisible attributes of God have been made known to all. All men are without excuse. God offers hope in this text. He offers hope. And the truth is this. The truth is this. None of us deserve this amazing grace gift that God offers we deserve damnation, condemnation. We deserve to be sentenced and exiled from the presence of God forever. But God, in his mercy, mercy, the compassion and tenderness of God being offered to those living in misery, God offers hope. God offers hope to you today. But the reality is every one of us must be born again and every one of us must be saved. When you look at Agrippa, he held a very lofty, exalted, earthly position, but he was spiritually lost. And no matter what your position is, you must be born again. This includes the rich, this includes the poor, this includes the famous, this includes the forgotten. The only way to the Father is through a relationship with Jesus. And that is what Paul is laying out. I had mind monsters in fear early on. After coming to know the Lord and uh, was going out and starting to share the gospel and I was doing these baseball camps and these baseball clinics, and but I still had some pecking order stuff in my mind that I didn't even know I had. I was doing a chapel for the Oakland A's back in 1990. I was in spring training. 88, I'm still playing. By 1990, I'm out of baseball, and I'm taking the gospel to the locker room. And in 1990, the Oakland A's, they, they had built a dynasty there. And I, w I went in to do chapel. I'll never forget this. And they had players like Dennis Eckersley and Rick Honeycutt and Carney Lansford. If you followed baseball at all, we're right here in the fall classic now getting ready for the World Series, but all these big-name players. And I, I, I was like enamored that I was standing there about to share the word, and I was impressed by these guys. And if you're impressed by a person, you'll also be intimidated a little by these people. And I somehow, in my mind, as a 27-year-old guy, was equating years of active service in the major leagues with being better than. And I remember I did that chapel, and I finished that day, and when I walked away, I was like, that was awful. You bombed it. That, 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 that was not good. And I remember when I walked away, I went for a prayer walk that afternoon, and as I was walking, I was like, Lord, I didn't handle that well, and I didn't represent you well. And the Lord said, Tim, if you're, if you're intimidated or impressed by anybody, I can't use you to have influence and impact with them. Tim, Tim, Tim I promise you, I've made them in my image just like I've made you. And they're beggars searching for bread just like you were. And so it doesn't matter, Tim, 
If I'm ever going to use you, you're going to have to give up the right of being impressed or intimidated. And I believe that was a changing moment for me that God would begin to open up doors to take the gospel to the famous and to the forgotten and to the rich and to the poor. Because the Lord allowed me to start to see people's hearts instead of their resume, instead of their accolades. And the Lord said, it's not about that. But that was such a defining moment for me. And Paul makes the statement here, whether it's the least of these or whether it's kings or whatever, you've got to be born again. Whether it's a praetorian guard being chained to or whether it's an emperor, you've got to be born again. And Paul stayed laser-focused on the gospel. Three people we observe in this text. You see a guy by the name of Festus. He represents those that are alienated and distant from the Lord. Even he ascribed to Paul those things that would be somewhat satanic, if you will, when he calls him a madman and insane. Festus represents those that are dark and disturbed and are still living in stable misery that are troubled and blind to the truth. We read about him here, but I can promise you in my 37 years of walking with Jesus, I've met a ton of Festuses in my life. People that are arrogant, people that are egotistical, people that are driven by whatever, but when you sit down with them and try to reason with them, you go, man, they're dark, they're, they're disturbed, they're lost. And then we, then we read about Paul here, and Paul represents those that are passionate about following Jesus. From that Acts 9, Damascus Road experience, when you read this man's life, he was committed and yielded and serious about honoring Christ with everything he had within him. And occasionally, in this life, we get to meet some Pauls along the way, people that have violently repented of sin, people that have come to taste and see that the Lord is good. And you go, man, that dude right there is a Paul. That lady right there has got the heart of Paul. And Paul's testimony would be for, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then you meet Agrippa, and he represents those, don't miss this, that are almost converted to Christ. Agrippa listened, and he considered what Paul was saying. But his statement was this. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. I love playing on words. I love pondering words, but I can tell you that almost is one of the most dangerous words in the English language. Almost. The sum of everything, but just most of it. Almost is an oxymoron. Almost is a word of contradiction. Almost parties with nearly. You'll see almost and nearly partying together. Almost runs with if only or just about or next time. Those are words that are used in our culture oftentimes. It's a 
It's an interesting word. Almost is a, is, is a statement of missed opportunities. It's a, it's a statement of half-hearted effort. Almost, this honorable mention. It's second string never getting in the game. It's runner-up. We almost, we almost played. We almost went to state. And I hear that word so often, right? Because so many people that I meet, their claim to fame is almost. I almost graduated. I mean, I almost made the team. I almost got a scholarship. I almost won that championship. The Falcons almost beat the Patriots. took my daughter Rachel to game one of the Phillies Braves series and they get down and Olsen hits a three-run homer there in the bottom of the ninth and the fans are staying with it they almost came back but now they're sitting at home (laughs) but you hear that phrase so often do you not you hear it all the time it's like he, he, he almost got it together. She almost got it together. But they relapsed because they would rather drink alcohol than drink living water. They, they, they were close. They were almost there. But they went back to partying and they went back. They couldn't let it go. The commentary I hear so often is, we almost worked it out, Tim, but we got a divorce because I would rather have fun than have a family. They would never say that, but that's what they're saying. I would rather have fun. I would rather please me. Tim, I almost went to church, and I almost one time repented, and I almost surrendered it all. I almost did that. We live in a world where people get all offended with four-letter curse words and swear words, but I can tell you one of the most harmful words in the English vocabulary is a six-letter word, almost. Almost. Because there is such a huge gap between he did and he almost The nation of Israel had been promised by God that God was going to give them the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And one day they came to a small little village called Kadesh Barnea. And while they were there, they were about 20, 30 feet away from the promised land. And, And God was wanting to give this to them. But out of fear and whatever else would grab them, they turned away and would drift another 40 years in the wilderness. They were almost there, but they turned away. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with the young, rich ruler? Remember Jesus is having this conversation. This guy is intrigued with what salvation is all about. And Jesus even looked at him and he said, hey, you're almost there, but, but, but go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor, then come follow me. And the scripture says that he had much and he owned much. 
he, he almost surrendered to Christ. And the greatest tragedy in life is to almost be a child of God or to almost surrender, but to walk away. There were so many times between, between 16 and 23 that I would flirt with the things of God. I knew my life was off the rails. I knew that drinking, partying, one-night stands, I knew I'm living a lost crippling life. And there were so many times when people that loved God and loved me would share the gospel. And I knew in my head that was the right thing, but I wasn't willing to transfer my allegiance. And I kept drifting and drifting and drifting. And I meet so many people that way. I'm almost there. I'm, I'm almost done sowing all my wild seeds to the flesh. I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. And the problem for me, like so many other people, and it would be a tragedy for you to be sitting here today to almost be there because you've tasted of the joy of the Lord. You've tasted of the love of Christ. You've tasted and been around it and you've sat there. There's people sitting in here right now that are just sitting there and you're like, man, I, I, I've heard the word of God. I've, I, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I know it was God convicting me, telling me to repent and surrender, but, but, but I've kept walking my own way. To me, that would be the greatest tragedy for any person in here today. I want to go drink one more time. I want to go use one more time. I want to go run one more time. I, I, I still want to pursue this hedonistic lifestyle I feel like there's more for me to, to, to get there. I, I, I'm not ready. I'm almost there, Tim. Listen to this, son. D.L. Moody was preaching in Chicago. He's known as one of the great proclaimers of evangelical Christianity in America. Moody Bible College would be named after him. It was October 8, 1871. He's preaching in Chicago. That night, his message was, what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Moody was a great proclamator. He was strong. And Moody finished his message that night. And Moody, in his bio, we would read even D.L. Moody saying this. He concluded his service that night with this statement. Now, I want you to take a week, and I want you to think it over. And when we come together next time, you will have an opportunity to respond. The choir came. They were singing the final songs that night to wrap up the service. But the sound of the singing would soon be drowned out by screaming sirens hitting the streets of Chicago. The great Chicago fire was blazing and in the aftermath, there would be hundreds that would die, and over 100,000 people would be found homeless. Some of those that heard Moody's message died in the fire. And Moody, with great remorse, he said, I will never, never, never leave an audience a week to think over the gospel message 
because the urgency of repentance and surrender is now. It is now. It is now. And I think for so many, man, I'm at the door of salvation. I've heard the Lord's voice. I've contemplated it. Yeah, I even walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, got in a tank, but I've never surrendered. I was trying to dodge hell. I, 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 I tried to appease my conscience as much as I could, and, but I can tell you where you spend eternity is at stake. And that was one of the motivating factors in my life in October of 85. Yeah, Tim, you prayed a prayer. Yeah, you walked an aisle, but you never yielded to Christ. And if you were to die... Tim, you are so scared that you would spend eternity in hell, alienated from God forever. I was gripped with that. As I drove home, I was gripped with that. Lord, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of chasing. I'm tired of trying to fulfill my flesh and things of the world. And like many of you, I would sit there and think, but I'm going to have some more opportunities. Maybe, maybe when I'm about 30, I'll get this right. Maybe when I'm 40, maybe after I've played around and done some more things, may, may, maybe I'll have some more opportunities. May, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. My buddy Jimmy and I were hanging out yesterday morning, and we were doing some stuff and around the yard at my house, and Jimmy gets a phone call. He walks away, and he comes back, and I said, are, are you okay? And he said, my baby brother, my youngest brother's 27-year-old wife, dude, just died. 27! I remember John Smoltz, when he was meeting with a guy, Walt Wiley, who used to be the chaplain of the Braves. Walt laid the gospel out, and John said, yeah, but, but, but I think when I'm 40, maybe around 40, I'm going to surrender and John was 26 at the time, and Walt says, but what about if you don't make it to 27? And what Walt was basically telling Smoltzy that day is the time of repentance and surrender is now. Don't postpone it anymore. And maybe you, like Agrippa, would say, Tim, I agree with what you've said, and I agree with the gospel message, and I'm sitting here, and I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit, and you almost persuade me you almost do and almost is an awful commentary for a lost soul that is headed to hell that's an awful commentary to be so close to hear the gospel and we live in a spoiled nation where there's many strong evangelical churches where we can be around it where we can even listen to old Billy Graham clips and we can hear the gospel and, and, and it was so close but, but, I, but, but I was going to wait a little bit longer I almost stepped into the love and mercy of the Lord but I I rejected surrendering all because my favorite sing, song to sing is I surrender almost that's my song and the Lord is saying, man, my compassionate hand has been extended. Don't, don't reject me any longer. I read this text and I ponder this text and I'm forced with this question as a student of the word. What was it 
that really kept Agrippa in an almost state? Was it pride? Was it ego? Was it peer pressure? Agrippa, what was it that kept you from totally surrendering and saying, I want the gospel? And I look at family members that I have and friends over the years that I've had, and I look and go, what is keeping you? I know that the Holy Spirit has to be working. I know that the Holy Spirit has to be tugging. I know that it can't just be an emotional thing. It can't just be a response to some proclamator's words. I, I, I get that, that, but there has to be this realization that I am lost, I am troubled, I am I'm desperate to know God. God, I got to know you. People, people can't manipulate you into the kingdom. You have to repent and say, I want that. I, I, I want that. I close you with this. Almost looks put together on the outside, but it's falling apart on the inside. Almost knows enough talk, but has no walk. There's people that you meet and they look all put together on the outside, but when you go below street level, carry into the soul of who they are, it is a condemned house. It is a mess. And Jesus is saying, come to me all, all of you, not almost all of you, come to me all of you who are tired and weary and heavy laden and burdened, and come to me and find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you, my teachings and my sayings. Take my yoke and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and gentle, and I will rescue you from your burden. If you're in an almost state today, I would encourage you with everything that I have, please respond to Jesus Please repent. Please surrender.